I pay homage to the Buddha. I pay homage to the Dhamma. I pay homage to the Sangha. Well, I, I guess it's getting pretty um, rough out there now. I probably should have known this morning when the traffic was just so easy, you know, uh, driving over here. There was just hardly anybody on the road, you know, and that's a, that's a pretty rare thing. Like, I'm, I'm used to L.A. traffic because I've lived in L.A. my entire life. I'm used to the amount of people, so many people everywhere, so many people on the freeways. And I'm used to things taking a while on the roads. And I'm used to it being a little better on a Sunday. But what I'm not used to is the freeways being entirely empty on a Sunday. So I guess people are taking the whole social distancing thing pretty seriously, and, and rightfully so. But I've noticed that there's this whole other thing happening, too, that there's a, a kind of panic I'm noticing online, a thing I'm noticing in person. You know, just before we, uh, we started the service, I was telling Kusala about a, a friend of mine that they went to the store to pick up some frozen pizzas for his kids. You know, his kids like to eat little frozen pizzas, puts it in the, in the oven for them, and then they get to eat it at home, and well, a nice little treat for them, cheese pizza. But when he got there, there was this man with a cart, and he's just loading up the whole cart with, with frozen pizzas, just, just for him. I guess he's waiting out the apocalypse with DiGiorno. That's all he's got going for him. He's just loading up with pizza. And my friend tries to approach and, and grab a couple, and, and the guy actually steps in front of him. To stop them. Like, these are all my pizzas. This is the rising crust. It's all for me, you know? And, and that's, that's just the kind of nature we're, we're seeing in people right now. This, this kind of panic and the response to that panic that comes up in them is a kind of selfishness. And, uh, and it's, it's a little hard to, to watch, you know? Uh, and the way it's also playing out on social media, the, the kind of misinformation, the, the fear... People are, are spreading information before they even have a chance to check on it. You know, I saw something that's like, you know, the, the virus resides in your throat. All you have to do is gargle with salt and the virus goes away. Like, well, I mean, if it was that easy, I think the doctors would have figured it out by now. Just gargle with salt and go to work. It's fine. Right. But that's not what's happening. Right. And the thing is, you know, the, these people that are finally realizing that life is quite fragile aren't really responding in, in what I would say is a conducive way, a, a useful way. You know, rather than seeing the fragility of life and then questioning the way they've been living, they're going to the supermarkets and buying up all the toilet paper, pizzas, and, you know, tater tots and everything else, all the spam, and, and hoarding it at home. Uh, and the thing is, like, that, I don't, I don't see uh, the benefit in that. I, I understand the very human response it's absolutely human that when you realize how fragile life is that it, you, you can catch a sickness and then that's it you could die I mean that that's a very real fear but that kind of fear we can actually use as, as fuel for the practice and so I think that Buddhists have a, a very unique way of responding to the current situation the current climate this this social distancing I mean, in a way, uh, puts us on our own personal retreats. We can actually use this in a good way and reflect on something. So even before uh, I knew today was going to 
kind of work out like this. Uh, I was planning on, on talking about uh, Sang Vega, right? Because I, that's something I really don't hear a lot of uh, American Dharma teachers talk about, you know. Sang Vega in, 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 the, in the Pali canon, especially in, in, the, in the suttas, is a very important uh, quality of mind. Now, if you don't know what Samvega is, um, it's, a, it's a, a lot of complex feelings that come up when you realize that you're going to get old and you're going to get sick and you're going to die and life is marked by suffering and greed and all sorts of nasty things. You know, when The moment we, we make that realization that the, the normal mode in which we live is not conducive to our happiness or our longevity, a, pa- a panic sets in. This this dismay and this dread uh, sets in. It, it very much is like an, an existential dread or an existential uh, sadness that comes in when you realize that the normal mode of being sucks. Really, I mean that that's that's what it comes down to. Uh, and I think the reason why a lot of American teachers, in particular, don't talk about this quality. Uh, is because we're, we're trying to avoid seeming pessimistic and, uh, and, and having a, like a nihilistic view because we always want to focus on, on all the good stuff, you know, because there's a lot of good stuff to focus on, like, like love and compassion and acceptance. And those are all important qualities too. But if we're trying to break up uh, our greed and our craving and our clinging for sensual things, we have to notice this as well, this samvega. Uh, and, I mean, this really goes all the way back to the, to the beginning. And, uh, you know, before I was even going to get into this topic, I was going to have like a whole preamble for everyone here if there was going to be anyone new to Buddhism because I recognize that the moment you get into this topic, it's easy to sort of tune out because it's not the sort of lovey-dovey acceptance sort of stuff you find in, in a lot of Western teachers today where it's, they, they don't focus on these kind of things because people already have a negative view of life. Why make them even sadder? Uh, but in truth, the, the, the reason why Westerners even approach the path anyway is because they recognize that something was unsatisfying about the, the way they were living before anyway. There was already some sense that the way they were living was not conducive to their happiness and they sought something else out. If you look at all the people coming towards Buddhism and coming towards meditation, it's because life, the way they're living, is unsatisfying. But if you start peeling that, that lack of satisfaction away, you start looking underneath, what's underneath there is a lot of dread and a lot of anxiety about life itself and its fragility. And this happened to the Buddha back before his awakening when he was still Siddhartha, right? He had that, that moment of panic. And we have different versions of, of the story, of course. You know, there's, there's some where he was living a, a very easy, uh, very uh, decadent life. Uh, in fact, in, in the Pali Canon, in one of the suttas, the, the, the Buddha describes the way he was living before as a life of refinement. Because he was living in beautiful, ornate palaces. He had beautiful gardens. He had gorgeous people taking care of all of his needs. And yet there came a point when he was stricken with this kind of fear and dread and dismay at the way life unfolds. One version of the story says that he had four different sites. 
you know, that he, he had the, the sight of seeing someone old. He had the sight of seeing someone ill, very sick. And he, he had the sight of a, of a corpse you know, as, as he was walking around. And he saw the sight of a, of a mendicant, of, a, of a, a monastic person going off into homelessness to, to pursue the spiritual end of, of suffering, right? And that, that's one way of, of thinking about the story, that he, he actually went out and saw these things for the, for the first time at 29 and had that, that panic rush in, like, I'm going to die. That's, that's the panic. That's the fear. I'm going to get old. My body is going to become feeble and weak, and I'm going to get sick, and I'm going to die. And, and, and that's, that's the feeling he had. And uh, as human beings, we all kind of intellectually know that that's, that's sort of how things are going to end. And uh, a lot of people, especially in Western philosophical traditions, work towards uh, acceptance of that. You know, the thing is, there's, there's nothing we can do. Here's, here's this inevitable thing that's going to happen. We're going to die. And what we need to do is, is kind of you know, stiffen our, our resolve and, and be okay with that. We need to accept that. And a, a lot of people, I think, too, in the West, look at, at what the Buddha did after that panic set in and see that ultimately as just acceptance of, of fate, a sort of view of, of, of helplessness. Like, well, there's nothing we can do about sickness and old age and, and death. And so I guess what we do is we accept it. Uh, and I see that a lot, you know, uh, a lot of a, a lot of what's out and about in, in 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 today's society, the way we we talk about these things is, is very much this uh, radical acceptance. People love that phrase, radical acceptance. And uh, you know, I I don't think it's actually useful in that way because when we uh, when we just allow ourselves to accept something, we become complacent. And the Buddha was not complacent when he had this fear rush in. He decided to go off and do something about it. And this is another story that we're, we're familiar with in, in different versions. You know, in, in some, the, the Buddha went off and, and rushed into the night and didn't even really tell that many people he was going. But there's another version that's actually in the suttas where the Buddha has the resolve to go off as you know, when he was still Siddhartha, Siddhartha has this resolve to go off into homelessness, and his parents actually don't want him to. As he's cutting off his hair and, and putting on the robes, his parents are actually crying and pleading with him not to go. And I actually like that version of the story better because it shows the resolve he had to actually go off and find answers to this fragility, to these fears we have about fragility. So even though it sounds like I'm talking about something really bleak, I swear there's light at the end of the tunnel. And if there had been people new to Buddhism today, I would have emphasized that more. And I'm going to start emphasizing it more for the people who are going to listen to this later. Either they're watching it or they're listening to my podcast. Uh, because... I know that this is the point when people start tuning out because they start thinking that I'm going to talk about a lot of fire and brimstone and a lot of bleak things. And that's not the happy stuff they want to listen to and they kind of turn off. 
But there's light at the end of the tunnel, I, I swear, because we start with Samvega, just like the Buddha did, but we don't end there. There's this, this other quality of uh, uh, Pasada, right? Pasada is uh, like a clarity of mind that we, we can come to where we realize all this other stuff we thought that was going to make us happy, all this stuff that we thought was stable and secure, when we realize that it's none of those things, we start looking for what is. What is a stable form of happiness? A secure and permanent kind of happiness? Which, you know, the Buddha ends up discovering is Nibbana. You know, that, that's what he ends up teaching, that that is the most stable kind of happiness. That it's free of all of those things that frightened him before his, his awakening. That it's not just learning to accept old age, and it's not just accepting sickness, and it's not just accepting death, but actually transcending all of that through the Eightfold Path and through breaking up craving and clinging in the mind. So it's a hopeful thing because what we're talking about is moving away from a lesser kind of happiness to a greater kind of happiness. And I know it's a hard sell, uh, you know, especially for people who, who haven't gotten to that point in their practice where they're, they're really uh, kind of fed up and wary of the way we normally live, the kind of happiness that we try to find. You know, like that guy in the store, he's trying to find happiness in DiGiorno, you know? He's not going to find it. You can't find happiness in pizza. Trust me, I've tried. It's not there, you know? Bloating, heartburn is found in pizza, you know? Not, not happiness. But it, it takes a while to, to truly have that kind of confidence and conviction in the path that we are, even though we're giving up these lesser forms of happiness, we're moving towards something better, more blameless, you know, something that's, that's really truly happy and satisfying. That, that's what we're trying to do. So the, the Buddha encouraged everyone to sort of go through this, this dark period in their path at the very beginning. Because oftentimes it's, it's easy to point out. During the Buddha's lifetime, it was extremely easy to point out. You didn't have to convince anyone that they were going to get old and they were going to get sick and they were going to die, right? They saw it everywhere all the time. And in our modern society, we've, we've lulled ourselves into this sense that maybe none of that stuff's going to happen. You know, we get all the old people, we round them up and put them in a home somewhere, we don't see them anymore. All the sick are nice and sequestered in hospitals, we don't see them either. You know, and the dying, man, I, we're so separate from that. I, I was an adult before I saw my, my first corpse. And a lot of people haven't seen one at all. And that's not an uncommon thing. So we're, we're very uh, sheltered in that regard, at least in America, as far as I've been able to see. And then something like this happens, and then we realize that no matter how far our technology has gotten, no matter how far our medicine has gotten, no matter how advanced a society we think we are, we're still the kind of people that are subject to old age, sickness, and death. That's why people are panicking right now. That's why they're running around like chickens with their heads cut off, just running all over the place and trying to round up all the toilet paper. 
I can't believe that that's the thing people want to buy most. You can't find it anywhere right now. I almost panicked yesterday because I had to go use a public restroom in the midst of all this stuff. I go in the stall and I do my business and then I reach in and I go, wait, where is it? Where is it? Did someone steal it? Because I could see someone doing that. Going into the, the public restroom, seeing that there's toilet paper in there and going, ah, and then just wrapping it all up in their hands and putting it in a bag and running out. And for a moment, that was my reality. I was searching for it. And then sure enough, it was actually there. It was just kind of higher up. And I thought, oh, I created this whole story because that's the kind of things that are happening right now. Because that's what we see on the news and that's what we see on Facebook and Twitter. All the toilet paper's gone, right? Meanwhile, all the Sri Lankans are fine because they have the hand bidet and they're, they're good. No problem, you know? Us Americans, though, we're still using paper. We're crazy. So we're all panicking. But that's the thing. People are panicking right now and then not doing that next step. But we get to because we're here. Right now, today, we're at a Buddhist temple. A lot of us currently are either ordained or some kind of teacher in some capacity or have been practicing for a long time, right? So our kind of panic might be a little different. Our panic might instead be a kind of reflectiveness, a reflection, rather. We're reflecting on something we already know to be true. So that's what the Buddha asked us to do at, at all times throughout the day, to reflect. And a lot of people talk about these reflections as uh, like five recollections. I like reflections better, and the reason why is because to recollect something is just to remember it. You know, these five remembrances, five recollections, five things you just kind of remember every once in a while. But I like reflection because that, that involves some, some thinking capacity, some introspection and investigation. So the, uh, the five reflections, some of them I've already gone over. So the first one is I am subject to old age or aging. I'm subject to aging. I have not gone beyond aging. The second one, I'm subject to illness. I have not gone beyond illness. I'm subject to death. I have not gone beyond death. I will grow different and separate from all that is dear and appealing to me. And then the fifth reflection we're going to look at it in two ways. One is a kind of uh, a way that's conducive to Samvega, but then we're also going to look at it as uh, in another way as uh, conducive to uh, Pasada. The fifth reflection is, I am the owner of my actions, heir to my actions, born of my actions, related through my actions, have my actions as my arbitrator. Whatever I do for good or for evil, to my actions will I fall heir. So I, I think I've already talked enough about, about the first three. Um, so I won't go over them individually. I'll, I'll talk about them collectively. Now, the reason why the Buddha asks us to reflect on these things uh, as facts, as, as truths about the human condition, is not so that we just accept them as facts, right? They're, they're not immutable. They're not unchangeable. They're, 
They're facts so long as we continue to live the same way. And they're facts so long as we do not reach the goal of Nibbana. But if we can move past that point, if we can actually develop the path, then we start seeing that it's not just these facts that we're, that we're looking at, but rather ways of, of attaching, ways of, of clinging. And we see something a lot different. We see that we reflect on, on old age because we're really clinging to youth. And, and I would say more than youth, uh, beauty. We're really caught up in, in appearances and vitality, and we assume it's going to last forever. We have too much confidence. In fact, the Buddha says that we live intoxicated with youth, intoxicated with beauty. And uh, this can happen for, for Buddhists, too. You know, um, I remember, this was a while ago, I, I was at a, at a day-long uh, retreat. And we were all practicing sitting meditation, and we were practicing uh, walking meditation. And so it was a group of, of men and women, all, all kind of mixed together. And we start doing the, this walking meditation, and, uh, and this woman catches my eye. She happens to be attractive. So then, I'm, here I am at a retreat. I'm supposed to be focusing on dispassion. I'm supposed to be not clinging, not craving, no lustful, sensual thoughts. But then here's this beautiful woman. And she's walking back and forth doing a walking meditation. And I keep noticing my eyes gravitate towards her. I'm watching her, how she walks. Like, how beautiful, how beautiful. And I'm caught up in it. And rather than focusing on my breath and my body and my steps and on focusing on effort, mindfulness, concentration, I'm focusing on her instead. But then she gave me such a beautiful gift. She decided she needed to use the restroom, which was only a few steps away. She goes in, closes the door, and the room is silent because we're all doing walking meditation. And then the series of noises that came out of that restroom rid me of any lustful thoughts. I couldn't believe how loud the noises were. And once she was done with her business, she also had to blow her nose, and it sounded like an elephant. It was so loud, and I couldn't believe all these noises were coming out of this cute, small girl I'd been watching. And I thought, what a gift. My lustful thoughts are gone. And that's the thing. You know, we, we are intoxicated by youth. It doesn't last, and it's not even real. And we, and we are intoxicated by beauty, and that's the same thing. And it's true of... Of, of, of health, you know, we, we, we think we have this sense of vitality as well, and clearly what's happening right now, the panic that's setting in, shows that that's not a secure thing either. We're also intoxicated by life itself. We think it's this, this resource that's, that's going to last forever, that we have all the time in the world to do all the things we want, and then we can focus on awakening later. We got all the time, all the time. And, you know, this was something I was talking to my wife about uh, a while ago, too, that for a long time, there are so many things in my life I've been putting off. Because, like, you know, I'll do it later. I'm, I'll do it later, you know, when I'm older, when I'm older. The thing is now, now I'm older. You know, it's already happened. Like, the days and nights have flown by. I'm not in my 20s anymore. I mean, you know, I'm now in my mid-30s. I'm starting to get these streaks of gray in my hair that my, my hairstylist yesterday was very nice not to point out. So, oh, you have such great hair. Oh, thanks. 
shouldn't point out any of this stuff happening right here. I don't even want to get into what was happening in the back. And I thought I had been doing a good job as a Buddhist too, that it, it, it wouldn't bother me, right? And I tell people all the time, you know, ah, oh, doesn't bother me getting older. But then it seems like every single day I won't shut up about how many gray hairs are starting to show up. Every day I'm like, look, another one, look, another one. And it's my wife mostly hearing it. Look, another one. So I'm still thinking about it. It's still this thing like, wow, I'm, all this time is slipping by every day, every night. It's going by and going by and going by. And what am I doing with it? So that's a form of motivation too. To realize that this fragility means that we're on borrowed time in this life to make the most of it. To really do what we can. So the fourth reflection also points out another important thing. We're going to grow different and separate from all that is dear and appealing to us. Now that includes people, but there's a lot of other things that are dear and appealing to us. Right now I'm very separate from a lot of the toilet paper that everyone took from the store. I'm sure that's dear and appealing to a lot of the people that can't find any right now. And the same thing for a lot of other things that we like to do. Can't go to a lot of coffee shops, can't go to a lot of restaurants. We thought about going to see a movie the other day, but I can't even imagine being in a movie right now. Someone coughs and you worry, you know? And, uh, and a lot of people are, are really nervous about even seeming sick because uh, even a mild little cough might send someone into a panic. In fact, another friend of mine, the other day he lives in an apartment complex and he went to go check the mail. You know, the mail is in a common area. They have all the mailboxes right next to each other. And he's walking over to the mailboxes to check his mail. And this, this woman is, is slowly opening her door because her apartment door is right next to the entrance to the apartment complex. And she peeks out to see, is it safe to go out? Is there anyone around? And she sees my friend walking towards the mailboxes and he had a little coffee. He goes, <coughs> and she closes the door and hides because that's how panicked people are. You know, I saw a joke online the other day that said, you know, I'm going to be honest, I, I used to cough to cover up my farts. But now with Corona going around, I don't want to get anyone the wrong impression. Now I, you know, I fart to cover up my coughs, you know. Because that's how paranoid people are becoming now. You know, they're, they, don't wanna, they don't even want to seem sick. I can't even imagine right now. It's springtime. People have allergies. Can you imagine how many people are losing their mind over their allergies? They have some hay fever and now they think they're dying, you know? And, and that's what happens. We, we, we have this borrowed time and we focus on the wrong things. Because we do have borrowed time. Of course we do. The, the best story in the world still ends with someone dying. Even the best love stories. It's so amazing. This couple, they met in high school. They've lived their whole lives together. They've been married 70 years. And then how does their story end? Well, someone wakes up to a corpse. That's the happiest love story. No one talks about that part. So what do we do with our time? Because we're not going to find stable happiness and stable pleasure in our own bodies. We're not going to find it in our youth which is fleeting. We're not going to find it in our health, which is fleeting. We're not going to find it in our lives, which is also fleeting. And we're not going to find it in all the things that we think are important because those are of that same nature. But we have that fifth reflection, that fifth remembrance. What we do have is our actions, our intentions. And Pali, that's, that's Kamma, right? So that's what we have. 
And that's not an oppressive thing. That's not a constricting thing. That's a, actually a very freeing thing because that means our actions actually have results. We are causal agents in our own lives. Despite not being in control of these other things, it's certainly not our bodies that we're in control of. It's certainly not society, and it's certainly not this realm of samsara. That's not what we have control over. But we have control over our minds, and we have control over our intentions and our actions. Those are the things we work with. That's important, because we might not be able to do too much with our physical immune system, especially against viruses that we have no immunity to. But we can work on mental immunity. We can strengthen our mental faculties in such a way that we find something stable and secure that's not dependent on anything external, anything on the outside. So that's that, that's that pasada, that's that, that clarity. When you realize what actually ends up mattering in the scheme of things, in the scheme of ending suffering, and in the scheme of ending the, these effluents, you know, these these uh, these cankers, these sores, you know, these these things that are these defilements. Some way, some are translated that way, right? And for me, that's actually a hopeful message. You know, I don't know if that is for a lot of people because that's not that's not what they want to hear. They want to hear acceptance that I just accept things the way they are, and I don't have to do anything, and I don't have to strive, and I don't have to think. That's a whole other thing too. I don't, I don't know how many people I've met that think that the practice itself is to stop thinking. You know, they say, oh, you know, this problem we have, it all comes down to attachment to thoughts. No thinking, no problem. And if that were true, anyone in a vegetative state is an arahant. And that's not true. The Buddha asks us to think like this, to have these kind of reflective thoughts. And not just in this negative way, but in a positive way. Because then if these are not sources of happiness, what are? Because then we can find happiness in other things. Uh, the happiness born of seclusion. That's one of the, the, the happinesses that the Buddha exalts and says is a good thing. That's why we meditate. We're actually looking for happiness in meditation. We're not looking to turn off our brains the way some people think. You know, if you study the jhanas, you go into the first one, by seclusion, by secluding yourself from sensual pleasure and residing in the body. And then happiness and peace, joy and happiness arise. And it's through thought, you know, vitaka vichara, right? That's, that's you know, uh, sustained thought, or actually some people call it um, we have thought and evaluation. There's different ways of translating it. But the, those are the kind of thoughts that you have when you sit down to meditate. These are not good forms of happiness, not secure enough. I'm going to give up these forms of happiness for a greater happiness in the body and in the mind. And then that's when we have bhiti and sukha. And then eventually the thoughts sort of settle down and then you have, you know, happiness and, and peace that come not from seclusion, but from concentration, from samadhi. And we have this path that follows through that also comes into insight. We have insight into what will actually work for us, what actually gives us peace. And it's not DiGiorno, and it's not toilet paper, and it's not any of the things that people are worried about right now. Um, not, not to belittle their concerns, but rather to say that as Buddhists, in this kind of time, when, when things are shutting down, when society is 
basically taking a break for like a month, maybe two weeks, but maybe a month. When society is shutting down this way, we have this really great opportunity to, uh, to deepen our resolve in our practice, to, to choose to use this time to really cultivate good qualities of mind, skillful qualities of mind, and skillful actions. And uh, these five reflections are, are a way of doing that. They're, they're a way of, of looking deeper into our, our nature and deeper into what will actually save us. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's not the things we usually think, and it's not even the things that are usually taught to uh, Western meditators. Because it's, it's a hard thing to accept. Sangvega sounds very bleak and sad. Um, but that's not where we end, you know? It, it's, it's realizing that, that happiness is not something that we can depend on if it's based in these external things. That happiness comes from our own efforts and it's something internal. And at this point, that's something that I have a lot of confidence in. And I didn't for a long time. I, I really did try to, to follow the path, but sort of have, uh, kind of to use an, an American expression, like have my cake and eat it too, which means that I, I was trying to practice meditation, but not really follow the precepts. And I was trying to practice meditation, but not really give up on, on sensual pleasures in any real way. I thought that giving up on sensual pleasures could be an intellectual exercise. So long as I knew not to be attached to sensual pleasure and uh, sensual forms of happiness, and I don't mean sexual, I mean sensual, things, the bodily things that we think are going to make us happy, like, like eating all the pizza and drinking a bunch of soda and whatever else, right? Those kind of things. Or staring at a, at a beautiful woman. All those things that we think is going to do something for us, and it, and it doesn't. And I had to learn the hard way, trial and error, that, that these were things that kept holding me back. Holding me back from something that is actually very secure now. So that now, when, when someone sees me and they wonder why I seem so peaceful now, it really is because I'm getting to a point where it's okay to abandon these lesser forms of happiness. Alright, so hopefully I managed to talk about this in a way that is useful and uh, in a way that uh, is accessible to people who listen to this later on and, and who are newer to the path. And it, it doesn't sound like something discouraging, but uh, motivating. Uh, in the meantime, I, I hope everyone stays safe, uh, use the social distancing well to, uh, to cultivate, cultivate good qualities of mind and good kinds of happiness. And uh, I guess I'll see everyone around in a few weeks. I guess we'll keep in touch through Facebook, huh? I don't know. Anyway, thank you. <laughs>